Six minutes after 12 on this Friday, sunny, windy, and you're almost there. Good afternoon. So close to the weekend. Greg Brady in for Alan Carter today. Alan's already started his weekend. I heard the end of his show yesterday. He says he's going to New York City. He's gone to New York City. You know what the temperature is in New York City right now? 12 Celsius. I, I mean, that is... It, you may as well have flown to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. 12 Celsius. And if you know Alan, I've met him a couple times around the office. Lovely guy. I mean, everyone's been lovely to me. I, do you think I'm really going to tell you if people aren't going to be lovely to me in this building? I know some people from years ago. But I'll tell you something about Alan. He's a sun's out, guns out guy. And that is, I don't know whether that's frightening or rewarding for all of upper and lower Manhattan this weekend. But I hope he has a good time in New York City and you'll hear him back here Monday at noon. So let's start with this. Well, the Leafs beat an actual team in the playoff standings last night, so you had to stay up close to 11.45 p.m. to do it. We're not going to talk much about that today, but there is a sporty angle to something that is awfully concerning I'll get to next segment. But we start here. How many people in the province of Ontario... Equal fans of Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford. That's a big ask, isn't it? Anyone? Show of hands? Raising of hands? Not while you're driving or operating other heavy machinery. Probably very few are going to say so. That you voted for Trudeau in 19 and you voted for Ford in 18. Used to be a time when we would vote and support in a less tribal fashion. But contrary to what you might think and the seeming polarization of our politics and how tribal we have become, we're very tribal. We used to vote in patterns in Ontario. Let me explain. You didn't want too much power with one party. Now, whether that was surreptitiously or whether you planned it out, oftentimes Ontarians would vote liberal federally and conservative provincially. It was like that for years in the 60s and 70s and the parts of the early 80s. But then from 84 to 85 and almost 90, almost through 93, we shifted. Brian Mulroney had two majority governments. Ontario supported him really well, like really well. Two majorities for him and both David Peterson of the Liberals and Bob Ray and the Democrats in 1990 ran the province for the better part of a decade as well in, I guess, what we'd call political contrast to Brian Mulroney's progressive conservative government. So if absolute power corrupts absolutely, whether that's a truism or not, We kind of didn't want to find out in this province. But truth be told, I believe strongly this is a hopeful day somewhat. A Trudeau-Ford summit happened earlier this morning. We know that's already over. I kind of hope they talk for longer, but maybe that that means they got through the small talk early and went kind of substantive. You know, when you're chit-chatting with somebody and all of a sudden you start you start talking about, you know, what you're, uh, you know, what kind of shoes you're buying or what you're getting somebody for Christmas or a vacation you had five years ago, and you really got to get to the meat and potatoes. Maybe they did that today, and yet you'd think Trudeau, because of what we're told would be opposed on so very much politically. Trudeau ran a campaign at so many Ontario stops. You might have been at a few. You surely saw the footage or heard the footage here using Doug Ford as the nail and Trudeau himself as the hammer. That's not much of a rivalry. The hammer usually wins. He bashed what Ford is doing, what Ford said he'd do, and what Ford still plans to do. Everybody's got plans. It was smart campaigning. The premier isn't terribly popular right now. The reasons are obvious. They may grow more obvious. Your kids might be home from school soon and you don't have plans for them because you work or you're aghast, maybe, that the concept of green energy seems to be despised by so much of the Ontario government in the last few days. That's become obvious. But that aside, Ford's right about one thing. Not that it's really easy to speak French. It's not. Madame Coloza in grade 11 taught me that right away. I got a 68. I never went back. 
I'm still here now. Some of you did vote for Doug Ford last year and Justin Trudeau this year. And he said that this week. He really did. Now, right or wrong, and people do love a winner, 40% voted for Ford in 2018 in this province. In Ontario, these numbers were harder to find than I thought they should have been, uh, given we should be able to find anything on the Internet. 41% of Ontarians voted for Trudeau. It's easy to find the seats, less so to find the popular vote in our province. 40 for Ford, 41 for Trudeau. Some of those people are the same. We know that. Ford says he knows Trudeau had to do what he had to do to get elected, keep Ontario covered in red for a party that a year before was just obliterated in the provincial election. We've covered that on a few shows here at noon. But you can approve of one and despise the other. doesn't matter to me. But know this. We all, and they both, could use a decent relationship and some common goals and togetherness on some projects. It often worked prior. We do seem conscious Nowadays, especially of painting the electorate as getting torn apart. Our country's being torn apart. America's being torn apart. Maybe not as much as we think. The educated folks with the same concept over and over again want Trudeau and Ford to work together. Probably far better than Stephen Harper and Kathleen Wynne did for some frustrating years for Ontario voters. Or Brian Mulroney and Bob Ray did for a few of those years in the early 90s. We need that, and hopefully today is a step in that direction. If you want to weigh in on this topic, feel free. Do you agree with me? It's a promising day. I think it is. I've got optimism. There can be a healthy balance, a give and take, and let's use that R word, a relationship that works between the Prime Minister and the Premier. 416-870-6400 or star 640. You can call me here, 416-870-6400 or star 640. Again, it's Greg Brady in for Alan Carter. You can tweet me. At Greg Brady T.O. That's G-R-E-G-B-R-A-D-Y-T-O. And follow me as well if you don't already. Let me shift to this, and we'll get your calls on the Trudeau Ford Summit that's over already today. Again, I hope that's not a bad sign. I hope there were no doors slammed. Let me shift to this. The edict that no good vibe can truly last, I think this week, more true than ever. Democrats in the states, second week of House impeachment hearings and proceedings against President Donald Trump. So the evidence mounts. People Trump was counting on to make him look less nefarious may may have actually made him look worse. And the standard Trump defense of bragging how well he knows someone and what a good person he or she is changed as well for two of those who testified under oath this week. Now he doesn't know them well and barely knows them. Rudy Giuliani, we know you're next. Never met the guy. Seems interesting. Check mark. Good times for the Dems, right? And they take then they take the stage two nights ago for yet another debate filled with candidates who take a valuable talk time and eyeball time for viewers and possibly undecided voters in key states. And so little gets accomplished, at least in the parts that I watched. I watched about 60 percent of it. Further evidence as well of what a dangerous game it is to predict the Democratic nominee this far out. We'd have said Hillary Clinton in 2007. It was Barack Obama. We'd have said Richard Gephardt in 1987. It was Michael Dukakis getting thrashed by uh, George Herbert Walker Bush in 1988 in a very winnable election, an open net, as it were. And we'd have said two to three candidates had a much better chance than Bill Clinton at this time in 1991. He was a two-term president. Look it up. But what to do about Joe Biden? We're worried he can't do the right thing if he has a very low shooting percentage in saying the right thing. And it happened again the other night. Asked what he'd do to address the problem of sexual violence and harassment against women in his country. Biden had a very strange response. He was going to punch it. He was going to punch that problem. Not once, not twice, three times. He'll, three punches. 
Here's the quote. We just have to change the culture, period, and keep punching at it and punching at it and punching at it. It will be a big people were laughing by this point in time. No, I really mean it. Biden says it's a gigantic issue. Thanks. Yes, we know this. You're not giving us anything concrete. Biden also announced his belief that, quote, no man has a right to raise a hand to a woman in anger. And that's good. But then he kept going and he often does. Biden's a keep going guy other than in self-defense. Yeah, that that was OJ's defense during his one domestic visit by the cops when it came to him and Nicole. It generally is. Oh, she hit me first, so I hit her more and harder. Come on, Joe Biden. The gaffes are going unnoticed by many right now, but why will they stop in 2020 if they exist in 2019? We've changed, but not that much. And yet no one, not Sanders, not Warren, not Mayor Pete, isn't without flaws going in and punching up against Trump. You win some, you lose some. But the impeachment means very, very little if the Democrats can't figure out how to win next November. And they're not off to a great start this November. We have a busy show for you today. Hope you can contribute. 416-870-6400 or star 640. We've got a very interesting conversation to have about when you're accused of saying one of the worst things you could possibly say to somebody. And it happened in an NFL game, allegedly, though the NFL doesn't quite think so, last Thursday night. And more on holiday debt and your debt period after 1230 as well. And our culture panel all packed in before 1 o'clock today. It's Greg Brady in for Alan Carter, and you're listening to Global News Radio 640 Toronto. You'll remember well, on the campaign trail, Doug Ford loved to say that he was for the people. But we all know too well what happened once he got into office. He cut taxes for the rich and cut services for everybody else. Now he's threatening more cuts to hospital funding, which could mean 84 fewer beds and nearly 500 fewer staff for the people of Thunder Bay. Cuts to public education. Cuts to public health. That's not for the people. All right, Justin Trudeau on the campaign trail. They they apparently also brought Jerry Springer's studio audience with them. Or uh, Montel Williams. You are not the father, Justin Trudeau. You've got got enough kids. Take it easy. Uh, 416-870-6400. Let's go to those phone lines. Jonathan, in the Kawarthas, beautiful area of our province. Uh, You're on with Greg Brady on 640 Toronto. Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah, at first, overall, from, from a macro look, it's like, yeah, I'd like people to, to find the nuance and gray area because it's not always black or white or whatever other metaphor you want to use. But then your clip sort of helps me segue into my next point where it almost comes off disingenuous on Justin Trudeau's part because never on the campaign. Now, I don't expect people to fully agree, like, hey, I'm running for prime minister. I fully agree with the other side. Yeah. but. They're totally disagreeing with the other side. So then to come in and say, yeah, it's like, what's going to happen? You're going to, uh, right before the next election, you're going to play the same game. Uh, look, it, to me, it looks like this. Uh, the liberals and Justin Trudeau pander to unions like hospitals, doctors, whatever, and they'll say whatever they have to say to get those. They, 
it's like 50%, 60% of the, the province works in the public sector. So it's easy to pander to those voters every time you come around. And that's pretty much what it comes down to. Well, and those are important jobs, right? Doctors, teachers, right, the, the, that aren't yeah. in the private sector. Incredibly important jobs. And you're right, they are they are unionized. I, I think we'd probably, thanks for the phone call, I, I think we'd all look back on the Ford campaign where Kathleen Wynne and the and just the liberals, it was such a convenient punching bag. And that's what you do. There's There's some... Not everyone's punching up in elections. Maybe we'd want more of that, but there's a danger in terms of not getting a little. Get, you got to get your hands a little dirty sometimes. I, I you know, I, my, the second comment I had out of the gate was about the Democrats. And if you thought they were too, if you thought Hillary Clinton was two kid gloves with Donald Trump in 2016, you're absolutely right. There, there were so many flaws with that particular campaign, but there, there just was not enough warning. There was more. Hey, you know, forget him. Let me tell you what I'm about and what I'm going to do. And that might have been the wrong way to go and and the democrats have to make certain they don't do that uh a year from now and and obviously they'll be on the campaign trail way less than a year from now one more on this and then we'll uh switch gears somewhat uh let's go to the phones and steve in newmarket go ahead man hi greg how are you thanks Great. for taking my call totally uh, just so quickly to start off in my opinion i don't think they're going to get anything done together that's just my opinion but the main reason i called in for i'm sort of tired in the media hearing everybody bashing ford uh being a conservative voter myself, nobody has ever called me to take a, a survey or a poll. And my wish with Ford is I hope he remembers who elected him, right. why we elected him, and that is to clean up the mess. My wife is a teacher. Yeah. The, the unions didn't vote for him to begin with, so I just hope he doesn't cave to these unions and give in to all the demands. that You're not going to please everybody. You won't, but some teachers, um, some teachers must have voted for him. Clearly, some teachers voted for him for him to get forty percent of, of the entire province. But I can say through my wife's circle, only a handful. They all huh. bash him constantly. No, 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 not, that, not now. I'm saying in 2018, they voted for him. They were angry with Kathleen Wynne. They were angry with the liberals. They didn't even want her as an option on the ballot. And and many liberals didn't want her as an option on the ballot. So it was. I don't want to say it was an easy election to win. You still got to do yeah. your work. But I think we were quite convinced the conservatives would win the election no matter who was the leader, right? I would agree there, but respectfully, I disagree. I still don't think many of them voted for him back then either. Interesting. That's just my, that's just my opinion, but... My my main thing is I hope he doesn't forget who voted for him and why, and I hope he continues to clean up this mess. And as far as the teachers go, I really think they need to be made an essential service. But uh, I thank you for taking my call and great topic. Happy, happy to have you and uh, have a great weekend. Listen, I'm not. I think there's an argument to be made there, and that's where we're at. Is like we've got to start opening dialogues and you know tallying when we can evolve our opinion a little bit. It's very possible teachers should be an essential service. There's every argument for it, and yet I also understand that's not what they've collectively bargained for. That wasn't in the job description of, of them going in. And and again, the idea of, of a union and uh, is, is a really bad word in some political political you know points of view that's for sure the popularity i can't i can't dispute you on the popularity i'm going to go with the numbers that we've got and when you pull 6000 canadians uh, 6000 ontarians rather and he's got 26% approval 26% now the only premier worse is stephen mcneil in nova scotia at 19 but generally speaking you start to worry when you're below 42 43 no one expects to be above 60, but once you drop above 40, these sound like, I had roommates that took chemistry in university. These sound like they're marks, to be perfectly honest. They were thrilled with a 60 and modestly disappointed with a 40. 
That's how hard university uh, chemistry is. We'll leave it there for right now. Uh, come back around. But yeah, Trudeau and Ford have finished their meeting and a lot more coming up on the news at one o'clock. I really wanted to play this. This Britain is going into an election as well. Great Britain is on December 12th. And just in 90 seconds alone, Sasha Baron Cohen, the actor uh, and activist, may have proved he's the politician that, that Great Britain's going to miss out on. None of this Jeremy Corbyn, Boris Johnson stuff. Sasha Baron Cohen got an award from the Anti-Defamation League yesterday and gave a 20-minute speech. I urge you to seek it out online. But here's a minute and a half. He ripped into Mark Zuckerberg, ripped into Facebook, ripped into hate speech and ripped into political lies. Here it is. We have lost, it seems, a shared sense of basic facts upon which democracy depends. When I, as the wannabe gangster Ali G, asked the astronaut Buzz Aldrin, what was it like to walk on the sun? The joke worked because we, the audience, shared the same facts. If you believe the moon landing was a hoax, the joke doesn't work. When Borat got that bar in Arizona to agree that Jews control everybody's money and they never give it back, the joke worked because the audience shared the fact that the depiction of Jews as miserly is a conspiracy theory originating in the Middle Ages. But when, thanks to social media, conspiracies take hold, it is easier for hate groups to recruit, easier for foreign intelligence agencies to interfere in our elections, and easier for a country like Myanmar to commit genocide against the Rohingya. fantastic stuff there by Sasha Baron Cohen. Here's something else he said about Facebook. Zuckerberg, this is his quote, Zuckerberg tried to portray this whole issue as, quote, choices around free expression. That's ludicrous, Cohen said. This is not about limiting anyone's free speech. This is about giving people, including some of the most reprehensible people on Earth, the biggest platform in history to reach a third of the planet. Freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. And there's no regulation. This radio station, this company has regulations about the people and the views that can come on in front of a microphone or in front of a camera and those views being espoused. There's clear... Now, of course, they'd be worried about getting sued as well, but Mark Zuckerberg doesn't seem to worry about that because nothing regulates it. He can't get sued for uh, defamation. He can't get sued for libel. Never mind, we can go into the taxes, but it's a huge, huge problem. The First Amendment prevents the government from limiting freedom freedom of expression. It, it does, but private companies seem to have all this control over what they're uh, allowed to have. And that's a huge, huge problem, no matter what side of the political fence uh, that you happen to be on right now. Uh, this from the NFL is incredibly interesting to me. Um, there was a wild brawl in the Thursday night game, not last night uh, with the Texans and the Colts, but the week before with the Browns and the Steelers. And everybody I knew, I went to a party on Friday night or a gathering, and all eight people had seen the clip. That's really saying something. Eight out of eight had seen Miles Garrett use Mason Rudolph, the Steelers quarterback's helmet. Cleveland Browns defensive end Miles Garrett used the helmet as a weapon on Mason Rudolph. And you thought, well, that's that happens from time to time. We remember what Donald Brashear and Marty McSorley. And there's been many, many violent incidents, right? Everybody remembers Dino Cicerelli, like Coco, like chopping the stick over Luke Richardson's head in a North Stars Leafs game way back when at Maple Leaf Gardens. And Cicerelli went to jail for a day. But the allegation from Garrett, which just came up yesterday, is that a racial slur was said by Mason Rudolph. 
And I, I have a little bit of a uh, self-anecdote on this, uh, but let's hear Miles Garrett after the game was over, and he didn't go there, but he hinted it was more than just the you know the heat of the moment getting in the way of his emotions. Did Mason say something? Is that what started things? They just got to go look at it. No, I'm not going to comment on it. No. So this, this emerged Wednesday, his claim yesterday. An NFL spokesperson said the league upheld the six-game suspension. And as we all know, outside of something physical, and, and obviously we're getting into serious territory here, outside of being accused of doing something physical you didn't do, you and me can't think of much worse than having been accused of uttering a racial slur when we did not. My skepticism here, and I, th- I think you have to go in on one side of the argument here. It's easy for anybody to get behind a microphone and say, well, it could have happened. I'm just not sure I wasn't there. No one else heard it. No one else heard it and has said something and spoken up since then. And you would think a black player, a white player, we all hope if we're in a scrum, if we're in a pile, and I know there's 70,000 people there. But guess what? Those microphones the NFL use are so incredible. You, how many times do you watch an NFL game and you can hear the you can hear the quarterback barking out the signals? All those parabolic mics are pointed at the play. So never mind the amount of cameras used, the amount of microphones used for NFL films, for CBS, for Fox, for ESPN, for whoever's covering the game and broadcasting the game. And even if you're not broadcasting the game, you are there. The league found no evidence. No evidence. And now there's nothing Rudolph can do, although it's been suggested in some circles Rudolph should file a lawsuit uh, and, and criminal charges. This is exactly the territory we went into when the actor, Juicy Smollett, said he was attacked, the, the guy that was on the show Empire, and said he was attacked by three people and he wasn't attacked. And Chicago police charged him with making a false statement. This may pick up. Um, it's incredibly disappointing. And, and from my perspective, I used to play hockey with, uh, with a guy who was Jewish. And uh, a couple a couple people who were Jewish were on the hockey team. We had a lot of fun. We'd play a couple times a week when I lived in Michigan. And we played against people of, uh, of another ethnicity. I'll put it that way. He claimed he was the victim of a racial slur on the ice and actually quite violently, honestly, with a stick and with his gloves, attacked one of the guys that he believed said something about him um, in, a, uh, in an ethnic sense, throwing a racial slur or an ethnic slur his way. And we talked about it so much afterwards in the dressing room, and we 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 just looked at him. We said, "You, it's hard. It's the hardest thing in the world to say to somebody. You can't do that. You can't get that angry. We know we can't do it on the street, but we also look at sports as this you know, you know, microcosm, and we can't enforce things of a legal nature, or we rarely do. We all know if if." Mason Rudolph, the Steelers quarterback, was dead today because Miles Garrett hit him over the head with his own helmet. You can bet damn well there'd be criminal charges. But it's the hardest thing to tell somebody, hey, I know you just got slurred racially, but you got to cool off. You quote Taylor Swift, you have to calm down. It's a really, really difficult thing to say, and it's something I've never had to deal with. People, you know, I think I got called fat once in a game, but there's a lot of equipment and the shoulder pads were kind of puffy at that given time. And and I, you know, I, I was doing what I could. I was doing what I could out there. This is a lot more serious than that. We'll see where this goes, uh, especially when the Steelers and Browns play again, and they will have to later on this season. We have a lot more to do in our bottom half hour, our culture panel. I'm really looking forward to that after 1245. Coming up, whatever level of household debt you think the average Canadian has, add some more on. We'll find out why and what can be done coming up next. This is Greg Brady in for Alan Carter, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.
right, shocking and terrible news from the pop music world. Before we get something a touch more uh, serious, I believe, uh, household debt. BTS, right? Okay, BTS, they just... All you gotta do is hashtag BTS on a tweet and you'll get like 30 new followers. If you're looking at to just flesh out your followers, just say something good about South Korea's most popular pop band. But they are a, uh, I guess what we call a boy band. But here's the bad news for their fans and them, I think also. They will not be exempt. And they asked from military service in South Korea. They'll have to do two years of military service by the time uh, they're 28. This is uh, something almost all able-bodied South Korean men must do. There's a lot of Russian Soviet hockey stars that had to do it as well. Like Sergei Fedorov did it and Alexander McGilney did it. But here's my problem. The exception. Well, there's two things to think about. What if we'd sent either members of New Kids on the Block or NSYNC into, into war zones... I, you know, like Donnie Wahlberg, I figure he can handle himself. The Knight Brothers, I don't know why I'm just less certain they could have been successful at the Gulf War. I, Saddam Hussein, it's, it was, we weren't sure what was going to transpire out of there. I had a lot of confidence in Donnie Wahlberg. And we sure didn't want to send Justin Timberlake to fight the Taliban because we need him. We need him culturally. We need him spiritually. And now he's a, you know, this lovely, perfect couple with Jessica Biel. We can't have that. But here's what I noticed. Exceptions are made. For the military service in South Korea, if you're an athlete who's won an international competition eh, or a classical musician, what the if I'm a classical classical musician, I'm a little almost offended by this. I'm a champ. I'm a great oboe player in Seoul, South Korea, and you don't trust me to go to military service yet. You trust the seven BTS guys to come through. Not so sure about that one way or the other. I'm a little uh, more than a little, a little concerned uh, about that being the case, I would uh, I would argue uh, one way or the other. Um, all right, let's go here. Uh, household debt. It's a major, major issue, major, major issue in uh, in where we are right now. Um, way more, way more debt than we've ever come across before. And uh, we have a guest on the line from Manulife whose uh, name escapes me at the moment, but I'm going to ask him on the air. And so we know. Hi, I, I have absolutely lost the introduction. So tell us who you are. You're from Manulife. I'm very glad to be talking to you. I got a little too wrapped up in South Korean pop world for a second there. Okay. Yeah. Hi, Greg. It's Rick Lenny. I'm That's uh, right, Rick. Manulife Bank. So this is really something. Uh, the, the numbers just leapt off the page to me. The amount of household debt in the neighborhood of, of the low 70,000s. And we're talking credit cards, but are we talking car payments? We're not talking mortgages. What are we talking about in that 70 plus thousand, Rick? Yeah, we're talking non-mortgage debt, generally speaking. Yeah, so you know the survey shows that Canadians feel defeated by their debt. You know, they're an overwhelming majority uh, feel the average household has too much debt, and and they're right. There is a lot of household debt, and uh, and then their the biggest challenge is that uh, almost half the people say that they're spending um, more money than than they're making. Do you think some of that is, I mean, it's difficult to know what we deem as frivolous when you need a new car, you need a new car. Some families just look and go, look, we need a vacation. We, we got to get out of here. And, and I know some of that is seen as, like I said, the, uh, the F word frivolous, Rick. But how much when we break some of that spending down that, that puts Canadians in debt is actual just staying in there, tuition for schools, uh, car payments, as I said, groceries, kids sports. Well, I mean, 60% of Canadians that carry debt are, are rolling their balances on their credit cards. So um, that's not the type of spending that you're talking about that, that is spending more money than they're earning. And, you know, that's a challenge with uh, the interest rate on, on credit cards. So there is a financial wellness crisis, and it seems to be affecting Canadians of all demographics. 
you know, we, we look at the survey and each generation seems to have an impact in various ways. You know, some are just entering the workforce, um, you know, potentially saving for a house. Others are trying to put their kids through university or pay off their mortgage or uh, retired and trying to live on a fixed income. And each generation has some unique financial challenges that seems to be influencing their level of debt. Rick Lenny is joining us, President and CEO of Manulife Bank on the Alan Carter Show. Greg Brady in for Alan Carter today. When we look at, at some of the numbers as well demographically, do we think sometimes these are younger Canadians? Are they older Canadians? We all know, and, and everybody probably preaches this now to their kids, they're like, don't get married too fast. Don't buy a house until you can afford it. Uh, and, and limit that spending of your income. Things will get better. You, you'll probably make more money as you go along in life to a certain point in time to a peak earning income. But do we look and, and say these are younger Canadians? Canadians that aren't really getting a hold on their finances like a previous generation might have? Well, there's no doubt the baby boomers are better off than the other uh, generations that we look at, but each one is having its challenges. In fact, uh, our survey shows sort of the so-called sandwich generation, the Generation X, is they're the ones that are feeling it the most. They're the ones that mm-hmm. are spending the most money versus their income, and they, they're the ones most discouraged that in their lifetime they'll, they'll never get out of debt. Yeah, it's one of those scenarios where I, I, I look and I go, it's, you know, yeah, you're, you're going round and round in a circle. It's, it's, like a, it's like a wheel principle right away. And we all know when we, you know, we start to think, well, we're starting to do really well and making more money. But at the same time, then as your kids get older, especially, your costs increase. You're paying for braces. Sports gets more expensive. And, and like I said, the university tuition looms for a lot of families, doesn't it? Uh, yes, it does, and that's uh, impacting Generation X the most, I would say. But even the millennials, you know, they're, they're challenged. Mm-hmm. However, you know, what was interesting is that the millennial generations are the most likely to use technology to help help them uh, manage their debt and reduce the, you know, and reduce their their spending. And the fact that they are using these tools that are available um, is good news. You know, we introduced our our all-in banking app mm-hmm. uh, just the last June, and and it. You know, every time someone signs on to it, they see where they're spending their money, how much they're spending, how close they are to their credit limit, and all of this it helps them meet their financial goals. Rick, are, are, uh, lastly, are credit cards easier that, to get? We, we know mortgages, uh, the rules have tightened, certainly, and, and the, the restraints and, and the regulations, but credit cards for people that start university, it's, it's a dangerous game. I know I had roommates that played that game and just just flick the debt from one thing to another. Some of it was for stuff they needed, and some of, some of it was for stereos and televisions uh, that they just wanted. How do you look at it and go, is this part of the problem right now, is that we're not teaching you know proficient spending out of the gate when you just give a kid a $2,000 MasterCard and they're 18 years old. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, financial literacy is an issue, and then when when you know more conversations you can have about money or debt, um, the, the easier it is for for people to come to grips with their their situation. Yeah, yeah some of it is is that uh, exactly. Rick Lunny, President CEO of Manulife Bank. Thanks so much for the time today. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Greg. That's interesting stuff. And and again, the, the, the credit card debt can rack up earlier on. But what I think what where students are especially is you really learn. It's on your mind. You got enough stress as it is with with you, you've just started driving. Maybe you want to buy your first car. You're deciding about grad school. You're deciding how little money you're gonna make in that first job. And when you stare eighteen grand, that the bills always come. The bills always come. And the fact that a lot of them come online now, I think that's more of a problem. You get something in the mail, a collection notice. 
that's pretty big news. You get a phone call, it's pretty easy to ignore in this day and age. We've got a lot to do uh, culturally coming up. Laura Hensley from Global Online, Mira Estrada, host of Cultured, right here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. We're going to roll from Julia Roberts as Harriet Tubman to the new Charlie's Angels movie to more on Prince Andrew to Coldplay not going on the road, but not for the reasons you might think. They've got songs, they've got an album, but why they're not going on tour. We'll address it all coming up next. All right, happens every Friday, usually with Alan Carter, uh, but we go through some weekly pop culture topics, and we're very happy to have Mira Estrada here, the host of Cultured, which airs tomorrow night, 8 o'clock. You're di- dying to get into a few of these, aren't you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and Laura Hensley from Global Online is with us as well. Thank you both ladies for coming in. Thank you. I'll do I'll do my best Alan impression for the next five and a half minutes, for better or worse. <laughs> oh, it's going to be good. Right. Um, let's. We were just talking about it. Uh, this Julia Roberts story with Harriet Tubman is fascinating um, because you know there's been many, many movies where history gets adapted and we get frustrated. And especially if you know the story, you're like, that's not how it went. But this is a weird one in that it was thought ages ago um, that Harriet Tubman could be played by Julia Roberts, who's white. And Harriet Tubman, obviously, quite famously, the 19th century abolitionist. Um, the last I checked, she wasn't white. Mira, what's your thought on this? How could this have possibly even gotten past like a like a breakfast table discussion? Okay, so as I swallow the barf in my <laughs> mouth, um, I just like I find this so disgusting, like on so many levels, because... The story, like the story, is of such historic significance. And then to what, like, was quoted the exact what the executives had said was, it was so long ago, no one is going to know the difference. Like, (laughs) it is beyond me that it's not like it's one thing to even like yes when Jake Gyllenhaal was Prince of Persia, but this is a real significant story. And then to whitewash. This is like literally. I I can't, yeah. I can't I can't find the words. Laura? No, I totally agree. I think it just highlights Hollywood's problem. <laughs> I think things have gotten a bit better since the early 90s when this conversation was had, but it just shows how tone deaf so many executives are and when people are making these decisions, they're not thinking about diversity. They're not thinking about representation and by whitewashing such an important story it just shows so how out of touch so many people are is there any possibility there are some cases where we've it's been a sort of a a elastic band rebound effect because scarlett johansson got a huge backlash over a role she was going to play a transgendered person got such heat for it she dropped out of the project like is that not allowed? Or who is it? Uh, Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston were in a movie where Brian Cranston was in a wheelchair, and they said, "But he's able-bodied. Why is he in a wheelchair? It, it, can we still do that?" Well, I think Scarlett Johansson just really upset people because she was saying, "I can play whoever I want. This mm-hmm. is acting. You know, it's performance." But I think the important thing to remember is that there are transgender actors. There are actors with different able abled bodies. So why aren't Hollywood producers looking to them to portray these characters? Why are we constantly going to the same white people? But Mira, Mira, is it chicken and egg in that we know a known commodity like Scarlett Johansson? I'd bring this up. Tom Hanks won an Oscar for Philadelphia. Would there be backlash now if we made Philadelphia and we said, Tom Hanks isn't gay? Uh, We can't make this movie. Do we have to have a gay actor play a gay actor every single time? I'm asking. I... It's tricky. I think there are so many 
gay actors now, openly gay actors. Like, if you look at that time, uh, a lot of people were not openly coming out as being gay because there were sensitivities around that. There was fear around not getting work. They like lose even, roles. It was like, their own business. Do right. you remember even with Ellen when Ellen came out? So it was a different time. Now, I think people feel a lot more comfortable in sharing their sexuality. And we know that there are mm. so many talented um gay um transgendered actors um i just when it comes to this like i just it just shows it shows privilege and it shows when you have those exact it always i always take it back to who are who are the people in that who are sitting at the boardroom making those decisions because it clearly shows that there is not enough diversity and representation at the top that's true at the That's executive true. level because these types of things wouldn't happen if there was enough diversity and inclusivity at the top i, I absolutely agree with that what may transpire though is you'd be maybe sitting there going we need a tom hanks in that role we need a scarlett johansson we need a brian cranston because those are big names we'll lose our jobs if this movie flops uh, essentially there I is think, that yeah I, I get your point but i think there's a difference between casting a white woman as a black absolutely. woman absolutely no no, no 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 Ab- <laughs> especially a historical figure uh, as mira pointed out all right there's no more victoria's secret fashion show uh why why do you think it's uh got fallen by the way- wayside clearly ratings have dropped and dropped and dropped but why not have this anymore because it's pathetic. But what? <laughs> when did we realize it was? I agree with you. But um, when did we I realize it? I just think it? it's so outdated. And if you look at like Rihanna's um, Savage by Fenty, like it's just so outdated. I think people have outgrown the show. People feel so disconnected. I don't like you're a male. Like it's for the male gaze. Like I don't think many females look at that and feel any sort of excitement or like relatability to that. And Victoria's Secret has always been catering to the male gaze. And I don't even know if the male gaze is fully like my husband is like, I don't even see anything there for me. Like, so I just think it's a very outdated show and they've realized it. Now, now. I wonder, I, I agree with you that it's probably, you're probably overdoing it and catering to males. Laura, what I wonder is if there are many women's magazines that have also made stars of a lot of Victoria's Secret models. I think women look at Marissa Miller, Adriana Lima, and they know who these names are. Helena Christensen. I can go on and on. So they become sort of iconic supermodels in part because of the Victoria's Secret brand, whether it's the catalogs or the show, right? Yeah. Or commercials. I think the thing with Victoria's Secret is that the fashion and beauty industry has changed. You know, mm-hmm. we lo- no longer necessarily want to see skinny, white, tall women all the time in lingerie. Where you know, people are talking about having diversity, whether that's different people from different backgrounds, different you know, sexual orientations. And Victoria's mm-hmm. Secret is just so reflective of a time that's past. And I think that speaks to your point. Is like you know, who is this for anymore? And I get that a lot of models have become famous through Victoria's Secret, but because I think of social media and the way that you can really brand yourself online you don't necessarily need a brand Mm -hmm. like victoria's secret anymore to make your career you can be really smart on social media and get campaigns that better reflect the the climate now than i think you could in the past the kardashians Uh, they didn't have victoria's secret they do not, but I'm <laughs> They're in your life. for, but for I'm a young saying, model to emulate you know uh, Kim saying, or like, Chloe. I know. I, like, yeah. 
there are other ways to there are other ways to do it the bet on yourself principle uh mira strada tomorrow night eight o'clock uh culture on right here on 640 toronto and laura hensley it's a pleasure to meet you both and i hope we have a lot more time next time we do this thanks so much that's all the time we have jeff MacArthur comes your way next have a great weekend thanks to sheba thanks to rob we'll see you next week